Good morning. morning. We are going to be closing Philippians today uh, with a unique sermon from it. Last last week, uh, I was told after service that we had a few visitors that when I let you guys know that the sermon might be five to seven minutes longer, they ended up leaving. So I'm not going to tell you that today. They probably had places to go, so that wasn't condemnation on them. That's just, they, they probably were like, that's probably going to be more 15, 20 minutes. I, I'll say this, typically I, I, don't, I don't think sermons have to be long, so if uh, you know, you're, you're visiting, uh, the Trinitarian series that we've done from Pentecost last week to now has gone a little bit longer. Um, there's just a lot in it, and it's hard to explain, and it's really hard to explain well. So uh, I, I know a lot of you have places to go today because my wife has a baby shower. So uh, I know, I know. We'll get you out of here in like two hours tops. Just kidding. Uh, all right. That's a joke if you're visiting. I say it won't be two hours. <laughs> all right. Sorry. Um, let me open up in prayer. Uh, from Psalm 57, Heavenly Father, God, your word says uh, in the Psalms, starting in verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. My heart, O God, is steadfast. It is confident. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens, your faithfulness reaching to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. God, today we pray that that your glory would, would cover us here at Cornerstone through the preaching of your word, God, and that the proclamation of who you are three persons in one essence and one nature. You are one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would praise you for that, that we would have more clarity, God, that, that finding out that you are unlike anything in creation because you are the creator and what you've done for sinners such as us through the redemption of Jesus Christ would awake us and stir our hearts to love you, Lord. Not just love you with our words, but also love you with our actions, God. Lord, I I pray today that this message would cause us to sing among the peoples. In Christ's name, amen. If you're not visiting, we finally made it. The last sermon of Philippians, which is somewhat sentimental for me, to me because this is the first book that we've gone through together since I've arrived at Cornerstone uh, in late October. Lord willing, we're going to do many more together. So just to reiterate, and maybe to be helpful for those who are visiting today, uh, technically we've we've concluded our Philippians series, uh, but what I had told our church and explained to them that I had recently seen a friend who finished preaching through the Gospel of Mark, 
And when he did so, he preached one final sermon regarding certain truths about the Trinity within Mark's gospel. And he had seven truths for each person of the Trinity was the structure of a sermon. I love that idea, and I thought it would be great to do something similar in Philippians. Therefore, what I'd, what I'd like to do today is to look at the specific persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in Philippians, briefly from Philippians, and see how the three persons act inseparably as one God, mainly regarding our salvation. And hopefully, you'll see what distinguishes them in their individual works are actually a reflection from what distinguishes them in their individual relations to one another. So the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Holy Spirit is Spirit. However, before we get there, let me briefly explain two technical and theological terms about the Trinity that I did not come up with. Men more brilliant than me did, so I'm just going to use those words and terms about the Trinity. If they're unfamiliar, I do have definitions. The first one is inseparable operations. Don't zone out. Just stay with me. We'll, we'll walk through it. Inseparable operations means that... that when the three persons of the Trinity act toward creation, they act inseparably as one agent, as one God. By acts toward creation, we mean the Trinity's works, their missions, and decrees outside of themselves, such as creation in the incarnation, redemption, the new creation, and consummation. For example, in creation, it is the Father who creates through the Son in the Spirit, yet they create the earth as one. In the incarnation, it is the Father who sends the Son to be born of flesh in the Spirit, yet they complete this mission as one. In redemption, it is the Father who chooses to adopt us as His children by redeeming us through the death and resurrection of the Son and gives us new life in the Spirit. Yet, they complete our salvation as one. Augustine, I told you it's good to quote Augustine, he's super helpful, summarized the doctrine of inseparable operations very well. He said, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Ghost are inseparably united in themselves. Because there's one God, there's one nature, there's one essence. We don't serve three gods. And Augustine says, since the Trinity is one God, therefore all the works of the one God are works of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Professor at Midwest Baptist Seminary, Matthew Barrett explains it, since God's very nature is one, he acts as one. Not merely cooperating, but performing a single act that accords with the triune God's single will. In other words, 
Yes, there are three persons in the Trinity, but there is only one will because there is only one nature. As we go through this sermon, the problem may not be that you don't comprehend what's being saying. It may just be that the mystery is just unfathomable about the Trinity. The second theological term uh, that the scriptures reveal is called appropriations. And what that does, it reveals that the distinct works of each individual person in the Trinity are associated to their specific relation to one another. If you look at our confession, the first article says we believe that God is one, three persons. And then it also says that they are distinct in roles. The reason they're distinct in roles is because they're distinct in who they are in regard to one another. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, the Spirit is the Spirit. And appropriations attributes an action that we see in Scripture to one of the persons of the Trinity that is common to the relation to one another. If you remember from last week, we said their relations or their eternal relations to one another is the Father is unbegotten. He's not begotten by anyone. He was not made. He was not created The Son is eternally begotten from the Father, eternally begotten. He wasn't made or created, He's begotten from the Father. And the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son as Spirit. And while the Trinity is a mystery, what is encouraging is the only thing that distinguishes the Trinity are their relations to one another. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father and the Spirit eternally proceeds from Father and the Son. Now, when you take their relations, Scott Swain uh, summarizes this doctrine as, well, no, I don't want to do this slide. He says, certain divine works are often specifically associated with certain persons of the Trinity. For example, Scripture specially identifies the Father as the author of the divine decree and as the agent of creation. Scripture specially identifies the Son as the agent of redemption. And Scripture specifically identifies the Spirit as the agent of sanctification. That is, the one who dwells with us and applies the effects of God's redeeming work to us and causes us to call upon God's name. That's a lot. That's why I don't want to put that up there. Gregory of Nyssa, a Cappadocian, described it as every operation which extends from God to the creation has its origin from the Father, because He is unbegotten and proceeds from no one, proceeds through the Son, who comes from the Father, eternally begotten, and is perfected in the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So all of their works originate in the Father, proceeds through the Son, and is perfected in the Holy Spirit. Gilzemri says, for each person acts not only in virtue of the common nature, but according to the mode of his personal property.
In other words, when we look, when we take inseparable operations and we take appropriations and we try to understand what is going on, when we look at the works of the triune God in the Bible, this is where these terms originate from. We see that the Father doesn't just act, he doesn't just do things, he actually acts according to his personhood as the unbegotten Father. The Son doesn't just act, he acts according to his personhood as the only begotten Son. And the Spirit doesn't just act, he acts according to his personhood as the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And I think the most helpful way to summarize this is again by Matthew Barrett. It says, how God acts towards the world mirrors who he is in himself. I probably just could have said that 10 minutes ago, but there you go. Okay. Now we have to answer the question. What does this have to do with you? How does any of that help you in whatever situation you're facing right now? I assume you probably came here for a word of encouragement this morning, possibly after having a disastrous week or just a difficult week, or one is up and coming, at which point you might just be barely hanging on by a thread, and whatever I'm rambling about right now, may appear to have no relevance in your life whatsoever. Loved one, if that is you, praise God. Because you've already arrived at the proper conclusion that this sermon is not about you. I know we're all tempted to believe on the contrary, but this life is not about us. We are not the main character of our own story. We are not the center of attention, and we were not created to be an object of worship. We were created to worship God. And the main character of all of our story is the Lord Jesus Christ. And until we come to terms with that, and bow down before the presence of the Almighty God, we will continue to search for messages about us. Preaching's not about exalting ourselves. The centrality of, of preaching is about taking the Word of God and manifesting the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is our Creator and our Redeemer. If you want me to tell you about yourself in this sermon, you're a sinner need of a savior preaching is reminding ourselves that the second person of the trinity was offered on the cross as a substitute for sinners such as you and me and if it were not for the divine works and missions of the triune god we would be lost in our sins forever awaiting the judgment of his wrath which looms over all of those who reject the son So there's, there's no greater encouragement, loved one, that for you this morning than understanding you are a product. If you are in Christ, you are a product of God's love, which was manifested by grace through the work of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. Three persons and one nature. So the goal for today is to take a closer look at Philippians to help see that their distinct roles toward creation are actually a reflection of their own relations to one another. We'll start with the Father. We are chosen by the Father. By the way, we're going to reference Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 today, uh, but Jordan's going to be preaching from that next week, so I didn't want to do that ahead of time. Philippians 1, 2. We're just going to look at a couple references in Philippians to see how this works, how the triune God works, and, and how that's a reflection of who he is. Philippians 1, 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Gregory, Cappadocian father, said, every operation with extent, which extends from God to the creation has its origin from the Father. While that may not be explicitly stated in verse 2, we can still see that it's implied. It's there. For Paul begins by saying, grace and peace from God our Father, we should remind ourselves that everything we receive, everything we receive originates in the Father and from the Father, including grace. And we receive that grace from the Father through the Son. John 1, 16 through 18, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son, who is himself God, is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. The Apostle John says that the Son came from the Father to reveal grace and truth. And that he has come and revealed the Father. And the Son is able to do that because he himself is from the Father. He is the eternally begotten Son. And all that the Father is by nature and essence is communicated to the Son so that they have one divine essence. That is why Jesus says in John, I and the Father are one. But they aren't the same person. They're the same nature. We're not modalist, which means the Father doesn't turn into the Son when it's convenient or turn into the Spirit when it's convenient. Okay? That is a heresy. We don't, that's not what happens. The Father doesn't turn into the Son on the cross. The Father looks away from the Son on the cross. At the baptism of Christ, as Jesus is baptized, the Father says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descends. God does not transform into the different persons. The three persons of the Trinity are eternally Eternally exist. So when Paul says grace to you from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we can actually appropriate that act of grace from the Father and through the Son, which is their relation to one another. And Paul tells us that Jesus is 
grace from the Father. The Apostle John tells us that Jesus is grace from the Father because in love, the unbegotten Father chose to be gracious to us by adopting us as his children. And we receive that adoption by grace through the Son who redeems us by atoning for our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteous acts. Paul walks this out perfectly in our background reading from Ephesians 1. We'll start with the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love... The Father, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The Father adopts us as His children because the Father is the begetter. He begets the Son, and He begets us as His sons, as His children. This is precisely why theologians such as Emery from a quote from earlier said, each person in the Trinity acts according to the mode of his personal property. The Father is a begetter, so he begets. And here we see that the author of our salvation is the Father. And that individual work of the Father appropriates, matches perfectly with his unbegottenness, with the unbegotten Father. All things originate in him. That's why Scott Swain said, the way Scripture specially identifies the Father according to his personal property is by attributing him to be the author of the divine creed. Implication. Why does it matter? I could not think of another way to apply this text, to respond to this text other than just being eternally grateful. That in spite of who we are, God chose us. He chose to call us out of sin and make us his children. And as much as we tried, there was nothing we could do to remove his effectual love from us. A sovereign love in which he chose to give his only begotten son over to humanity in order to be crucified so that we would be spared from his wrath. Eternal gratefulness. That's the response. That's, that's, a, that's a reason it's a great tragedy to be, to be awed by a powerful testimony and yet become bored or lack zeal regarding our own. And maybe you were saved at a young age, and maybe your sins were nothing in comparison to the person sitting next to you, or even preaching to you. But nevertheless, what the Word of God says is the only reason you were, you were born again at a young age, or protected from a life of defiance. Is because before the foundation of the world, the Father chose you. 
It's something to meditate on. It's something to consider. Because while some of us need reminded that we aren't the center of attention, others who may feel forgotten or insignificant need reminded that you were chosen to be part of God's family. You are not neglected. You are loved. And the word of God says, and we see that you are loved, you are not neglected. Because the word of God says, before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father specifically chose you to be his. Chosen by the Father, redeemed through the Son. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I think back to nice quote, every operation which extends from God to the creation has its origin from the Father and proceeds through the Son. I love that Gregory includes creation as an example how the three persons work inseparably in every one of their operations. Because their act of creation portrays the same Trinitarian formula, if you will, in their act of redemption, in every one of their acts. So that, so that when we get confused by this doctrine... And can't remember whatever in the world was just said. We can just go back to creation and remind ourselves how God acts as one by that which is common to each individual person in the Trinity. And at creation, God the Father created the heavens and the earth through the Son. We see that in the Gospel of John. Most of us probably know this passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, all things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. John says, well, it's clear, all things were created through the Son, through Jesus. And since we've already seen that the divine operations begin with the Father, it is easy to conclude what John is implying just here in the first three verses of his gospel is that the Father created the heavens and the earth through the Son. And the reason I love 
just understanding how the triune God works in creation is because those individual works of each person at creation are the exact same way they will act in our salvation. The Father and the author of life accomplishes our salvation through the Son. You'll never be able to say the pastor didn't preach on the Trinity. It is the Son who assumes flesh in the Incarnation. It is not the Father, it is not the Spirit. It is the Son who is born of a virgin under the law. It is not the Father, it is not the Spirit. It is the Son who is baptized and tempted in the wilderness. It is the Son who goes before Pilate as an innocent man to be condemned. It is the Son who is crucified and nailed to the cross. And it is the Son who is raised to life and exalted on high. Our salvation is accomplished through the Son. Ephesians 1, 7 through 12. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as they plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The Son comes from the Father to accomplish his will. And that is in common with the Son's personhood, who eternally comes from the Father as the only begotten Son. Implication. The, the primary way, what, what we see in Scripture, and, and, and from what God purposed in Christ, is the primary way that God chose to fix our broken society was to put forward his son as a propitiation, which means God's anger was removed from us when Jesus received God's wrath on our behalf. I find that super relevant today, especially in today's society. I even find that being relevant in the church today. It asserts that the gospel is humanity's greatest need. And it's not just unbelievers who object to that statement. There are those in the church, universal, who say, yes, the gospel is great. Yes, it's needed. That's all fine and dandy. But there are people who need food. And there are people who need shelter. And, and there's all types of serious issues that need immediate attention. They need addressed. And the gospel doesn't have answers for that. I, I, don't, I don't disagree that there are dire issues that need addressed, nor do I disagree that the church is even called to provide solutions for those issues and those needs. But the Word of God explains to us that the church of Jesus Christ 
was not commissioned to be a chow hall, nor was the church commissioned to be a housing facility. The church, Matthew 28, was commissioned to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And feeding the poor and giving shelter to the homeless are to be done in the name of Jesus as a representation that the triune God is making all things new by redeeming creation through the Son. So if we just give physical food, we feed their belly. But we don't feed their soul. I'd rather be poor and forgiven than rich and condemned. Now that, that message, the commission, was, was that, that God is making all things new through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was the message given to the church in order to call people to respond by repentance from sin and confession that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When we worship the Son, we worship the Father. If we ask ourselves, how can that be if they're distinct persons? Even as John 1 said, the word was with God, yet he was God. How, how can this be? And it is because while the Father and Son are distinct persons, we must remember that they are one God. They are not divided in nature. And as the author of Hebrews says, in in relation to how do we worship the Father when we worship the Son, Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact imprint or expression of His nature. Paul tells the Colossians in 1.15, The Son is the image of the invisible God. It is a mystery. But confessions, articles, statements of faith, going through difficult doctrines such as this is how we stay on course and on par and how we keep ourselves from going off course. And as Gregory of Nazianzus sums up our confession to keep us balanced so eloquently, he says, Oh, well, I'll just read it. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. It's a mystery. We we'll ask us, why does the Bible have to be so confusing? Why does the Trinity have to be so confusing? Outside of that's God, and he is unlike anything else. Why do the Psalms declare who is like the Lord our God? Of course, that is going to be difficult. But God has specifically chosen to reveal who he is as Father, who he is as Son, and who he is as the Holy Spirit. And the way that we can understand that is by seeing the works of the Father, the works of the Son, and the works of the Holy Spirit, and those works match each individual person. So you say, well, how did the theologians come up with this? Because they read their Bible, and they said, I want to understand God. And he said, God revealed, this is who I am. 
What's amazing as a preacher is I, is, is I, I should be trembling at preaching the mystery of the triune God. And what I tremble at more throughout the week is if I'm going to bore you to death with talking about who God is. We need to look at the third person of the Trinity and, and, and come to a close here. The Holy Spirit who completes the work Christ accomplished by perfecting those Christ redeemed. Oh, goodness. Hey. Final point. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In verse 6, we see that the one who began our salvation is going to complete it. And so we ask ourselves, well, wait, who's the one who began our salvation? God did. Right? It has its origin in the Father. It was accomplished through the Son. And now the Spirit of God proceeds from the Father and the Son to regenerate us and to be reborn and to sanctify us into the image of Jesus Christ. And then we just go back to creation. In creation, it was the Spirit who proceeded from the Father and the Son to give creation the breath of life. And then we go back to redemption and new creation. And at Pentecost, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son to give us the breath of life who were dead in our sins. And that would be befitting of the Spirit the breath of God, because it is the Holy Spirit who eternally proceeds from the unbegotten Father and the only begotten Son. And therefore, what is common to the Holy Spirit's person and relation to the Father and the Son is also common to His missions and His work. And His mission here that we see in Philippians 1.6 is to complete the work of Christ by perfecting those whom the Father has chosen and the Son has died for. The gospel is the work of one God who distinctly, yet inseparably, acts according to his three persons. We have to remember, it's not the acts themselves, it's not their acts that distinguishes the persons. It helps us understand what distinguishes the persons, but it's the individual persons that distinguish the acts. Implication. For the record, I know I've preached on the Holy Spirit almost three weeks in a row and haven't even talked about gifts. When we get into our ecclesiology series on the church later this summer, we'll get into gifts. So if you're like, dude, are you kidding me? You're not even going to talk about it? You just have to come back. Our salvation is secure. That's the implication of this text. That's the implication of the word of God and the work of the triune God. Paul says just from this one verse that that we are supposed to be confident in our salvation. And, and, and as Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3 of Philippians, he says, we don't put confidence in the flesh. Why not? 
Because as we saw today in Ephesians, Philippians, just across the board in in Scripture, that, that the work of our salvation was entirely completed by the triune God. And therefore, we have nothing to fear condemning concerning condemnation over our sins. We don't need to fear condemnation any longer. Because Christ accomplished that work. And we believe that. And we belong to the Father as His children. Yet some people, some Christians believe that you can lose your salvation. For the record, I reject that wholeheartedly on the premise that the work of our salvation as we see from the Word of God is exclusively the work of God. And I know those I'm, I'm, I'm sure that those who think they can lose their salvation, they don't mean to do this. But I actually think that believing we can lose our salvation is offensive to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a rejection of the unity within the Godhead who accomplishes our salvation through the gospel. The ability to lose our salvation emphasizes the effort of man and the works of man over the sovereign work of God. Furthermore, if we're we're saved by grace alone, meaning we cannot earn forgiveness, then how can we lose our salvation by not doing enough to maintain it? And I think it out. If our salvation didn't depend on us to begin with, how could it be contingent on us to remain? It wouldn't. It isn't. Because Christ accomplished it. Because the Father predestined us before the foundation of the earth to adopt us as sons. And the Spirit gives us life. So we can be certain that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. And in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, loved one, you were sealed, sealed by God with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it on the day of our Lord when Jesus Christ returns to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that that I didn't err in anything that I said, Lord, and if I did, God, that they would just absolutely forget it. They would only remember the things that are important manifest your glory and who you are and and even that that maybe a knowledge of 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 this mystery how you act as one yet are three in one and and everything that, that that came from this sermon lord might might drive a desire to learn more about you and and find the joy that that theologians and Christians and people have, have, have fought for, have, have fought over, have met over, have been persecuted over, Lord, killed for, 
for centuries, Lord, because the knowledge was so overwhelmingly great and, and, and filled our heart with the knowledge of our Creator and our Redeemer. God, I pray that you would use this today for your glory. Amen.